The last half of the 20th century was a time of massive change in the Forest of Dean. A woodland landscape littered with collieries, railways and foundries became a place of shiny new factories, cycleways and visitor attractions. Did this bring with it new attitudes and new ways of living? In this series, we're hearing local people describe how their working lives, families and social life adapted to the transformations of the last half of the 20th century here in the Forest of Dean. This is the Voices from the Forest podcast. Women and work in the Forest of Dean. It was, and lingeringly, stubbornly, sometimes still is, an entirely male-dominated society. The women stayed at home, apart from the occasional Saturday nights out, the summer band concerts on the common, and the chapel or pub outings to Barry, Weston, or the Malvern Hills smudged like a deeper hue of the sky on the horizon. Their world must have seemed a pale glimmer, slanted grudgingly off the man's activities, emptied of too much, confined by the cooking on big open grates, cleaning the metal fenders, drawing from the wells or village spout, getting in the tin bars from the back kitchen walls and sending their children to Sunday school with clean shoes and big white handkerchiefs. So wrote Dennis Potter in The Changing Forest in 1962, betraying some of his own male prejudices, pitying the poor forest women and their domestic drudgery. It was a picture he acknowledges was rapidly changing, even had changed, and before long it would disappear. The tyranny that governed the life and opportunities of women persisted in the forest, dictated by economic depression and social isolation. But the war and increased educational and work opportunities were catalysts for dramatic change. The history of women's work in the Forest of Dean is rarely a focus, as with a few exceptions, most authors have written talked about minds and the work of men. The best commentator on the condition of women just before the war was Winifred Foley. She wrote that on her 14th birthday her father told her that she was old enough to get her feet under someone else's table and for generations of young women that meant one thing, domestic service. At 14 or 15 years of age Young women were sent to work as servants in middle-class homes in Cheltenham, Bristol, London and elsewhere. For almost every young forest man that went to work in a colliery, a young woman would be sent to work in domestic service. Sometimes they would leave the forest never to return. The young women sent away, usually alone, were young, innocent and had none of the camaraderie shared by young miners working with fathers returning home to mother at night and protected by a union. Let's begin by listening to Ivy Gunter from St Revels telling us about going into service in the years before the Second World War. When I was 15 I went into service. A neighbour's daughter living close by, she was in the in this place and they wanted a kitchen maid because there was no other jobs you could do. Because my sister went to work at Clearwell Castle. I went to this place in the August, just after we went up to Wimbledon, because he was a KC, or QC, whichever it is. And they lived in Wimbledon most of the year, but they'd come down come down to this place for 
Christmas and again for a month in the summer. So I went down in the August and uh, I can't remember how long I was there. I know I went to Wimbledon for the Christmas with them. What were your duties then? Washing up, cleaning the pots and pans and doing everything a kitchen maid would do. Because the, uh, the other girl that was with me, she was a bit older than me, she uh, done upstairs sort of thing and I was helping out in the kitchen and doing all the rough work. I know. I do know when we were down there for the Christmas, one of the um, family, one of the in-laws, I think it was, came and said, if you can tell me um, what I was giving you for Christmas, if you can tell me what it is, I'll double it. But I'm afraid none of us thought what it was. And it turned out to be new money. But we just got what she was going to give us, I think it was about half a crown or something like that. <laughs> Young women in service lived in dormitory spaces in the attics and basements of the houses where they were employed. They worked long days and had half a day off a week, which made it impossible to return home to see their family. Ivy describes where she slept. Oh, in the, the up in the top of the house. They lived in a, a three-story, I don't know, a three or four-story house on Wimbledon Common. There was the cook, oh, three of us went up there when they went to Wimbledon, to, back up to Wimbledon, and trying to think how long I was there. I was a bit nervous about it because I'd never, I'd only been as far as Chawton King's to when my grandmother, she used to live in Bremen and then she moved to Chawton King's, so I used to, we used to go up there for a holiday, like. Ivy eventually got a job in a house in Chawton King's, which meant she could see her grandmother on a day off. Here she recalls her naivety, jobs with the poor gentry and life in Cheltenham and meeting other forest people in service. This included men who worked in various male servants' roles. Men in domestic service are rarely portrayed, but they were there. Very naive as well, you know, because, oh, I, I didn't know much as regards life in those days, only just... That, I think my sister was more, knew more about life than what I did. She'd be telling a joke and she'd say, she don't know what you're talking about. But of course, there was nothing else you could do only go into service. So, because the people around here, there were a lot of people around St. Breville's that had servants. They were what we used to call in those days, the poor gentry. They yeah. had money. But not lots of it, just enough that they would keep maids. And because I think that's where my how my grandfather picked up with my grandmother. I'm not sure, but I think that's what it was. It must have been up because she came down from Tondee, so she must have been up here working somewhere for him to pick up with her. Well, there were other people up there, but I didn't really mix with any of them because when I had a half day, I went to my grandmother's, so I mixed with the local people rather than people from down the forest, but there were a lot of forest people working there were. up there, yeah. Yeah. I mean, even some, some of the boys from the forest were working up because I don't know what they were doing, whether they were working some of the big houses, like, because we, we used to meet a couple of them. We used to go down the prom on a Sunday night, because, yeah. and there was always a lot of people walking up and down, down the promenade on a Sunday night, and we'd get talking to the, some more forest people, like, you know. Jo Lua's mother was adopted by her aunt in Lidbrook. Mum was born in Bargoid in South Wales and adopted by her aunt in Lidbrook. She grew up in Lidbrook. But she had to find a job 
and went into service in Herefordshire, but was still not close enough for her to get home, and the duties were arduous and the tasks menial and degrading. No, she had to live in there because she had half day a week and she couldn't get back to Lidbrook. There was no way, so she stayed. She yeah. stayed in service. It was it was strange to me. She was in service as a sort of between floors maid, and she said they had instructions how to clean the skirting boards with a shaving brush and all this sort of thing they had to do. I can't say she enjoyed it, but um, they had no option at that age, really. They were sent away to service. Amy Wynne Williams went to work closer to home and became a kitchen maid at Flaxley Abbey and remembers Queen Mary visiting in April 1945. Here she describes where the mark on her arm came from that led to her finishing work and her relationship with the Crawley Bovis. It's a long clip but wonderful to hear about carnival days in Lidbrook too.
Meanwhile, Ivy got a job in Cheltenham, where she was the only maid, and that meant she could have a whole day to spend with her grandmother. However, in an era of social prejudice, the family decided that she might have been born outside of marriage, and therefore not a fit person. Although her mother defended her reputation, she still had to leave. But it was only me there. I had to do everything. Do the cooking and the cleaning. I can't remember their names now. But see, my grandmother lived in Chorton Kings then, so I was able to go on my half day. I could, I could only pop. It took me about ten minutes to walk to my grandmother, so I was, uh, it was not better for me. I, I think I got every other Sunday as well when I was there. Of course, it was better for me because I'd have longer with my grandmother and the family. Yeah. So. Oh, they were very kind, very nice. And I enjoyed it. It was all right, you know. But uh, I don't know what happened. But I think my mother wrote a letter to them or something. But what it was, I don't know. But anyway, I left there. Because I, I think the people that were there were thought... Well, but in the letter, I know mother, my mother said something about she's not a love child, which in them those days, really, I think, was having a child out of wedlock, you know. Perhaps they thought my grandmother was... So, I don't know. But anyway, I had to leave. I left there and I came back to Gloucester. Possibly because of the widespread interest in industrial history, the forest miner is the focus of much attention but forest women in domestic service are overlooked. Perhaps this is because they represented a class system that we are anxious to forget, but they should be afforded the same respect and historical recognition as their male counterparts. There were thousands sent from the forest to work in exploitative conditions, a forgotten army of female labour. As social conventions changed after the Second World War, women doing paid work in domestic settings were less willing to put up with social and class prejudices and expectations of deference that made them uncomfortable. Here, Ruth Dainty from Huntley describes leaving her nanny's job because of the snobbery of her employers. So, so my sister used to have the local paper and there was someone advertising in there for a nanny you know, in Gloucester. So I applied and I got the job and I looked after these three kiddies. There was two at school and one at home, two boys and a girl. I used to walk them to school in that, it was quite nice. But they were sort of a bit snobby because I used to have, have my meals on my own. They used to be in the dining room, they'd bring me my lunch or dinner on a plate, you know, and I had it in my own room. So after a while, I, I thought I'd been there a year or so, I thought, oh, I'm not going to stick this. They were a bit snobbish, you know, and I used to have to help with the housework as well. And then I got fed up with that, so I packed that in when the youngest went to school, you know. So I thought, no, I'm not having this. On farms, there was sometimes an expectation the girls, as well as boys, would work on their father's farms after they finished school. Here Ruth explains how, at 15 years of age, she had to fight her father's expectations to help on the farm, and she went to work in a grocer's shop in Gloucester. I was 15, 
you were 15 in those days when you finished school and I was 15 in November so you could leave in those days after each term. And what did you do then? Well I stayed at home on the farm helping dad until I was about 18 and then I got fed up with it so I said I was I wasn't I was going to get a job and my dad wasn't very happy about it so I went and lived with my elder sister who was farming it it bullied just down the road from here and I went to work in a shop in Westgate Street but I didn't like it didn't like it at all and what sort of shop was it well it's a grocery you know all everything grocery but I can remember they had a downstairs like a cellar where they used to have to cut the lard up and cut the cheese up and all and I was put down there to do that well it was like a cold store very cold down there. Didn't like that at all. Parental expectations often dictated what careers women pursued when they finished school. In Jill Phelps's case, her mother decided that she had to leave school, get a job and decided what it had to be. By the early 1960s, young women were not as passive as Dennis Potter describes and were determined to map out their own future sometimes in defiance of their mother, Jill decided to determine her own destiny. She then, without any knowledge to me, got me a, an apprenticeship for hairdressing in Chepstow. And that was the first time I ever said no to her. And I said, no, I'm not. I'm not doing hairdressing. And she said, well, what are you going to do? I said, I've already decided. And I can remember running out through the door to stop that conversation. And a couple of days later, a letter came from Gloucestershire Education Department. And she said, what's this written, writing for you here? And I said, oh, that's my letter, that's my letter. Because unknown to her, I'd actually gone to Cindyford Mining Technical College and taken an exam um, to be able to go from school up to, up to there for another couple of years. And um, she was furious when I said what I'd done and that I was going to do it. And she said, I'm not paying for you. I've told you I'm not paying for you to go on to further education. And I said, I didn't, I haven't asked you for that. I said, I've been to see Mr. Harris at the top of Lydney, the news agents, and I already do the one paper round in the village. And Irene Baker's going to college next year, and I'm taking over her paper round. So I should be doing two paper rounds. And I've worked that out that that's enough money for me, for my um, lunches and for my for my bus fare to go to Cinderford Mining Technical College for a year, so or two two years. So that's what I done. Young women increasingly saw new opportunities, sometimes outside the forest, but the pull of family and home could still sometimes be too much. I left there. I was still only fifteen. I went to uh, the tech for a year to do a secretarial course. So I did type in the shorthand and bookkeeping. Was that something you wanted to do? No, I always wanted to go into the RAF and just hadn't got the courage to, to do it. I mean, the office jobs were plenty. Going back to the RAF then, so that was a, a dream? That was it something. was a dream, yeah. Oh, yeah. And why didn't you do it? Is there any reason? Was it just, it was too Probably much? family, I don't know. Family ties, family pools, yeah. It wasn't a done thing then, though. It wasn't? No. Not to go off, you know. I mean, a lot, a lot of my old classmates 
went on to uni, but didn't even think about it. What attracted you to the RAF, the uniform or the travel or...? The travel, I suppose, yeah. Travel. Either that or an air hostess. To me, they seem to be yeah. the same thing at that age. Home was looked upon almost as a place to eat, sleep, rest a while and make love, or be imprisoned in when there was no money about, rather than the personal centre of a man's life and existence. And yet the home had to be a little palace, where you could eat off the floor and not have it cleaner, and where the front room was almost untouchable. No doubt, within such a picture, the women, those wonderful, overworked, shapeless and prematurely aged working-class wives and mothers, were able to create their own society within that allowed by their menfolk, softer in its intent and less physically observable, less strident than the male culture, eddying around them in regular, monotonous predictability. In this extract from The Changing Forest, Dennis Potter sets out the expectations that forest men placed on women and the home. He refers to prematurely aged women and indeed the expectations and workload on women for these unpaid domestic duties were enormous and physically destructive. Yet women in the forest were hardly as passive as the image Potter portrays. It is true that the entire domestic burden of coping, sometimes with little or no income, was placed on the woman of the household. Some women left school but were expected to help at home, particularly if, as was the case with Rosa Taylor from Ruadin Woodside, she was needed to help her mother who was becoming less mobile. And when did you leave school? Uh, when you were 15. So what did you do then? Well, there was a job waiting for me at home. <laughs> yeah, because my mother... Um, couldn't walk very well. I've never known her walk properly. Did she have a bad leg or a hip? Or? Yeah, she had a bad leg. She fell down up the garden. Up, up the garden. It was all rough stones up there to go up there. And it was, uh, she fell down with me in her arms. And of course she tried to protect me. I was only six weeks old. And she tried to protect me and fell and broke her leg in two places. Of course, there was no free uh, national health help then. Who set her leg then? What did she do with her leg? I don't know, but it did never get healed properly. And, uh, and um, so she was near enough a cripple. And uh, so she was glad of some help at home. When you came back? Uh, with, with a big family, you know, yeah. Domestic work in the home was exhausting. Fetching well water, buying food, washing clothes, looking after children and family, sometimes in cramped spaces. After the Second World War, some families did not even have space of their own. Jill Phelps describes her childhood home in Aylburton, living with her grandparents. We actually lived in the house attached to the school. Um, my grandmother was the caretaker and um, we all grew up there in a very small house. And there were m my grandmother, my grandfather and three of my grandmother's children and myself, 
my dad and my mum in a three-bedroomed house. And one of those bedrooms served with a curtain down the middle so that the girls were at one side and Donald, the only boy, was at the other side. I actually had a cot until I was probably six because there was no furniture about much. And in the end, um, my dad made me a bed, but there was my bed and my parents' bed next door to it. And one funny thing I can always remember about that bedroom was the fact that um, dad used to keep pigs in the pig's cot. I grew quite used to growing up because the hook that was available, there was two hooks in the house, and one was in my bedroom and one was down in the pantry. So I grew up looking at a side of bacon at the end of my bed, off this hook that was in the bedroom where they hung it. At the heart of every home was the black range that women maintained and served many purposes. It heated the home, it was used for cooking, baking and heating water. It was always kept in meaning always a light. Jill explains. It was, um, it was never let out if they could stop it. Because my grandfather was an ex-miner, he could have a coal delivery um, every so often at a cheaper rate than the normal. So um, once it was lit, it was banked down at night time. All the dampers at the bottom were shut up and the chimney damper was shut and um, they would use small coal in a bucket, put water in with the coal, then put it on top of the fire and then smack it down with the back of a shovel to actually cake it on the top and which made it simmer, you know, smolder quietly rather than roaring away. And then they'd get up at six o'clock in the morning, open the dampers, put some more stuff on it and, and away it went. And that was how they managed. And you had a front room which didn't see a fire very often. <laughs> Only on high days and holidays. The ideal picture often portrayed of forest homes, particularly miners' homes, was of a peaceful idyll. But some were far from it. Potter remembered a middle-aged Berry Hill woman, tearful and battered, telling a group of other women that her husband by the way, a popular man in the village had beaten her around the head with a bucket. Domestic violence had bubbled away in the forest, rarely challenged or ending up in court, until as late as the 1960s. In between the wars, the most famous and nationally celebrated forest woman was from Elwood. Beatrice Pace, who was acquitted of murder of her husband, drew national sympathy because she had been beaten and abused by her husband for 18 years. The problem, in most cases, was caused by alcohol. Rosa Taylor blamed this for the poor relationship between her parents. Like, you know, when her dad did like to go and have a drink. And uh, not that I've ever seen him drunk or anything like that, but he did like to go and have a drink. And I think she did think where the money was going on, beer, and, and there was children to see to, like, you know. So I think there was thoughts on both sides myself. Uh, he worked at Northern Pit, but he didn't go down, he didn't go down the pit, he, he, he had a job on the top. Well, I don't know what they called it, but he, he worked on the top. Not like Harry, they, he worked, he had the ponies to look after when he worked at the 
George Hogg never drank alcohol after watching his father ruin the family. Yeah, we always had meeting on the wall and that, and we had sheep as well, yeah, sheep. We had about 500 sheep at one time. Well, between us, but I don't know what. In the end of his day, sadly to say, <laughs> I can't grumble about him, but uh, well, sadly to say, about thousands of pounds went down the drain in the rising sun, which was only about uh, 50 yards from the house. Yeah. That's where the money went. Yeah, yeah, that's where the money went. Yeah, yeah. And uh, from that day, uh, I've never... In my life, I might have a glass of wine, but I, <laughs> I saw my dad's failure with, with alcohol. I don't touch that. I've never touched it, no. Amy Wynne-Williams, then living in Lidbrook, remembers managing her drunken father. a watchful eye on their daughters. I asked Jill Phelps, who as a teenager had become a handful, if her father was strict, and this is what she observed. No, if he did say no, that meant no. But if I sat and talked and we talked it through and he'd tell me why not, and or yes, you can, but um, there were conditions and if I didn't um, get home on time or something, there were problems then with dad he'd let you know that he didn't he did not appreciate it you've broken your word and um so you learnt not to and he was very caring because we used to go to the church guild in the church rooms which was at the top of lydney on the old on on the school um next door to the school and the vicar used to run this little club and often I would see my dad's head peep through the glass door to make sure that I was in there when I said I was going to be in there. And he biked from Alberton and back again just to make sure that I was in there and I hadn't done something different. <laughs> and when it came to marriage, many fathers expected to be consulted as Glenda Griffiths found when her fiance failed to follow the old etiquette. 
Well, first of all, when we got engaged, he bought the ring, right? And it was going to be, I had to make a, it just a big surprise at Christmas, right? Which, when I was given the box, he was there. And I, I pretended I didn't know what was in this box. And it was a ring. And he put on my finger. And I can see my dad's face now. Dad was sat there and he was... And he got up and he went out in the kitchen. I said, what's the matter with Dad? He said, well, I know what's the matter with him, Glenda. John should have asked his permission. Dad was still of the old school. And uh, he didn't ask him. And Dad don't think much of that. So I went out because I was Dad's girl. I said, Dad, I said, don't be like this. He should have asked me first, Glenda. I said, well, he didn't realise he had to do that, Dad. I said, come on back in. I said, don't don't, don't make a, a scene about it. I said, you know, I'll get, I'll get John to come out into the kitchen, all right? So I went back in and I told him what happened. He said, oh, I didn't realise I had to do that. I said, we'll just go and have a word with Dad, will you? I said, he's a bit upset about it. So we went out and spoke to Dad and it was all smoothed over and it was all right then. For many men, marriage meant that their wives should stop working. It was a matter of masculine pride that your partner stayed at home. Ruth Dainty lost the best job she had because she got married. So I did the cleaning as well. I look after the baby. And then, of course, I was going to get married. And they, they said, how can you leave us? It was the best job I'd ever had to when I got married, didn't I? And so they lived in a little cottage in Stroud Road, but but there was a house going, a bigger house going up the street. So the husband said, "Well, we'll buy that bigger house, Ruth, and then you and uh, that's my future husband. You can come, you can have a flat in the big house, and you can still look after Simon, because we don't want to lose you." But but I said to I said to Doug about it. He said, "No way." He said, no way, as mine is going to work and I'm not going to live with anybody else either. So that was, well, it was, that's how it was in those days. I mean, women didn't go to work, did they? And even if men allowed their wives to work, having children often meant that women's careers came to a shuddering halt. But for some, there were options to earn money. Scoville's, also known as the Whitecroft Pin Factory, were one of the first to see the potential of the domestic workforce, as Pam Stratford explains. Yeah, them used to do outwork and all from the pin factory. Outwork? Outwork. What does that mean? Oh, them done that for years, outwork. Well, if I wanted to earn a couple of quid, which I, I have done it before now, you'd go down there, you'd get a quant, then they'd give you some uh, bags of different pins or uh, grips or anything of like that. You'd take it home and you'd do what you've been told. Put so many pins on a, t a piece of cardboard or usually it was so many pins on another pin and things like that. And you did have to put them all in different sizes and all that. It did all go on the pins and what is it? Different size pins so that and then you did take them back, put a label on with them and take them back. Then you did take them back, get your pay and add next, bring the next lot home. Mondays and Thursdays, them used to do outwork. Well, then at one time, them brought them up to the student, and people did fetch them from the student. I mean, people That's around here did go on the, the buses yeah. to Whitecroft 
to bring the outwork home. You'd yeah. have to do so many gross of um, your pins. If it was Goldilocks on a, a ring, you, it was about three different sizes of Goldilocks. Would you get them on the train while it's in the... Yeah. Oh, yeah, I'm always done. Well, Mary Butsoner was used to be on the giving out outwork. Did it pay well at work? Well, it did. We thought as it was paying well then. You know, I mean, it was very handy when you'd got kids. Well, nearly everybody round used to go down there and get their outwork. Meryl Teague, after leaving school, worked at Carter's and other factories doing bookkeeping and administration. In the early 60s, she wanted to continue her career, but had to give up because there was no support but the preacher at a Baptist chapel had his own accountancy business and gave her an opportunity to join. Then he'd got an accountancy business, so he, you know, he, he was only a part-time minister. So he said, if you're looking for a job, come and work for me part-time. So I did go and work. That's where I started account, doing accountancy work then, which was in about 19, well, after Haley was born. So you go to work with him part-time? That was part-time, only mornings, yeah. yeah going back to your, your job, at um, the job that you finished when you had Sharon. Yeah. I mean, did you have maternity leave then or anything like that, maternity leave? Oh, no. No, you didn't get that in those days, no. So you'd have had to finish work? Yeah. If you, if you were having That's a right. baby, you'd have had to finish That's work. That's right, and you didn't get any help, you know. You, you didn't have any financial support? No, no. Like That's that. right, no. No, things changed, don't they? Merrill eventually took over the business. For Val Matthews and Ruth Dainty, seasonal work was a good opportunity for earning extra cash. Here Val describes work both she and her mother did with young children. She used to go up to Brockworth taking the workers for night shift and the women doing in the war effort. So she meets your your father. Uh, yeah. And they get married? Get married. I come along and then seven others come along. I'm the eldest of eight. The eldest of eight? Yeah. Gosh. So what year were you born then? 47. Did did your mother stop work then after you were born? Yeah. And she didn't work. Well, she did um, field work, potato picking, strawberry picking, in season. I did it actually when Rachel was small. Working conditions for women in the forest improved when the UK introduced its first maternity leave legislation through the Employment Protection Act in 1975, which was later extended through further legislation. The 1960s saw a boom in the number of jobs available to young single women. More girls went on to higher education and in 1962, there were over 26,000 girls at university. Having lived away from home and with greater intellectual and financial independence, many women could now have aspirations beyond being a wife or mother. Advertisers celebrated these new women in a bid for their cash. Feminism began to find a voice in society with movements like Women's Lib demanding equal pay and opportunity. In this quote, the BBC describes how it saw the 60s as a critical decade. Technology brought a raft of new jobs to the forest and, with that, new opportunities for women. With that came new experiences of a social world that men had previously kept for themselves. I asked Joe Lure what her social life was like at Rank Xerox at Mitchell Dean in the 1960s. Wonderful. I joined the ladies' 
keep fit and then we went on to do variety shows I was a dancer in in the shows and we were very happy office we all went to various functions if it was somebody's 21st we all went it was very good we we used to go 10 pin bowling we had a very good social life and were you still living at home through all of this with your parents I went to Xerox, I was just gone 20 and I lived with my parents until I was 24. And what happened when you were 24 to change that? Then I got married. So you got married, who did you get married to? Was that somebody who worked at Xerox or somebody else? Yes, um, Graham Bevan worked at Xerox uh, in production control and then he ran a dance band privately but we had got together a big 15 piece show band to go in the shows which was nice most people will play an instrument or they've come from brass band they can play sax and that sort of things and did you play with the band no no, no. what did you do there uh, a sister mu uh, magician and yeah. as a dancer that was just my contribution although gender still defined what jobs you could do and the managers were male and secretaries female there was a new form of assertiveness that led to a strike. Joe explained. I wasn't in a union for years and then when I moved offices I was the loner. I was the only one that wasn't in a union so I joined because it, it would make things difficult. Did the union help you? Did you feel that was it was a, it was a benefit being in the union? The secretaries of all things had a strike one year so it, it benefited us to be in the union. It was a system a grading system and you were graded according to your boss so if your boss didn't go up the tree then you you couldn't go up the tree you had to change your job and we thought that was unfair because you, you had to have certain speeds so if you had them then we felt you should be paid for them yeah. and the secretaries did strike to get a grade without having to be tied to the person and were most of the secretaries women all of them were women. All of them were women. Of them. Did men do certain jobs and women do other jobs? All the, the clerical jobs were obviously men and women on the section and it was, I, I didn't know male secretary, no. We, we struck, I think it was two or three days, placards. We were outside the gates, yes, because they wouldn't, in the grading system, they wouldn't listen and it seemed to be the only way to get recognition. And the union fought for us and we got it, we got that the That worked grade. in the end? Yes. Women also increasingly crossed boundaries as men took up better paid jobs, something which they'd done during both world wars. And they soon demonstrated that they were capable of doing jobs previously exclusively men's work. Here, Pam Stratford describes her mother delivering the post in Yorkley. Our mum used to do the post. Or was a local post lady. Sure done the post at one time. Yeah. That was when you did that a sorted at the post office. It wasn't sorted at Lydney and Broadtop. You did sorted at the post office. And one girl one did do your upper Yorkley and one did do lower Yorkley. And you'd had to be over there about six o'clock in the morning when the post mail van did come up to sort it all out so that you could take it. Would you go from the barn? all across, all the way around the council house and out to the lodge. But you did always leave the post for the lodge up at Mrs. 
Rudges, and then them did call by there and pick their post up. Newspaper reporting had been exclusively a male job. Valerie Godwin, a promising writer, later to become a famous author under the name Valerie Grover Meyer, was born in Sudley in 1935 and had to leave school at 15 because her parents couldn't afford to support her. She became a librarian and through voluntarily contributing articles to the Forest newspaper, her talent led to a full-time job as a reporter. Roy Close observed that being the only single female working at the newspaper in the late 1950s and early 1960s gathered her unwanted attention. Uh, another Valerie Godwin, what was from Sudley, and she went on to edit some women's magazine. Yes, she did. Do you remember Valerie? Yeah, I remember Valerie quite well. What was she like? Quiet, inoffensive. Boys used to torment her because I was still apprentice, look. And uh, boys did torment her when they'd come up because she, she never seemed to be with anybody at the time when she was working at the Mercury office. But the, the lads used to it was always a couple who fancied her and their own way with women, I said. But I, I was very young at the time and or, or a little bit older than me, so it didn't bother me. I, I don't know where she went, but she ended up as a, an editor some women's magazine, and, and she got married, and Goldwyn Mayor or something, Grover Mayor, that's right, Grover Mayor, that, that was her name, but she, she originally did come from Sudley, but she was a very, I, I liked her, very quiet, inoffensive girl. She used to take a fair bit of ribbon off the blocks while flirting with her in one thing or another. Was she a good journalist? Yes, very, very good. Technology brought work that required quick thinking, and dexterity rather than physical strength. The need for fast communications had led to a rapid expansion of the telephone system, and while telephonists in the early days had been male, the role had increasingly belonged to women. Pam Box describes reaching out from the pin factory to a new opportunity. What made you move on? Well, I saw the job advertised in the post office for a telephonist, and I thought, oh, I rather fancied that, so I applied and got an interview and got the job. Which I enjoyed. I liked it. I liked the job in the post office. So tell me about the... Where did you see it advertised in the newspaper? In the local paper, I would have sought the Observer, yeah. And so you had an interview. Mm. You, yes. you applied. And who interviewed you? Um, I, it's quite funny, really. Wally Pritchard. He, he was... Uh, oh, and the present... The supervisor that was then in the telephone exchange, which was um, Miss Edmonds from Coford. And I can't remember who else. I think someone came down from Gloucester as well. There was three of them. And I can remember one of the questions they asked me, and I felt so stupid afterwards. What is the... Um, uh, no, where, where is it that um, tennis is played? And I said Wembley. I knew it was W. I knew it was something beginning with W. I said Wembley instead of Wimbledon. You still got the job. I still got the job. Here she describes working at the exchange and a remarkable memory for key numbers. It was a manual switchboard. By manual, I mean that people couldn't dial out very much. It all had to come through through the exchange. Um, the Lydney subscribers, they would if they picked their telephone up for the operator, you would have a light, and their telephone number was on there, so you knew exactly. Well, if you could remember, you would know who it was, you know, like 
I can remember now when there were single digits and two digits and three digits and then after it went to four digits. But I can remember probably at least 50% of the numbers and who, who they who the subscriber was. You can still remember. Yes, you would see if number, for example, um, you see a light and it was 231 on there, you would know who, who that was if it was a frequent caller. Um, well, I know that Lindy seven, uh, seven, eight, seven and eight were the police station. Uh, two four six and two four seven was Lindy Hospital. Watts Factors was three nine two, three nine three, and three nine four. They had so if these lights came up, you knew roughly who it was. The nineteen fifties and sixties were groundbreaking decades for women in the Forest of Dean. They were no longer sentenced to paid or unpaid domestic work. Technology had improved the home and created new types of work. Professional roles were increasingly filled by women and ultimately equality of opportunity was enshrined in law by the EU 1976 Equal Treatment Directive and thereafter glass ceilings continued to be broken. Much of the new opportunities for women came from the emergence of factories and manufacturing industries brought to the forest primarily to address male unemployment and create jobs for redundant miners. Our next podcast will look at the rise and fall of the factories in the Forest of Dean. To end though, listen to this description of a momentous day in the working life of Pambox at the Lydney Exchange on 26th of October 1960. Listen and see if you can remember or know someone who can remember what happened the evening before to create the chaos Pam experienced at Lydney Switchboard? Normally, you would see the same people in the street at the same time every day, people going off to work and things. But that morning, everything seemed very different. Um, you know, more people about and people rushing and dashing. And I thought, well, something just didn't seem seem right with the town, you know, walking up through the town. Um, and then you'd hear the an emergency vehicle coming down with a loudspeaker telling people not to switch their gas on. And um, various things throughout the street um, that just didn't hold right with how things should be. And anyway, when I got into work that morning, I um, made my way up to the restroom and the, the uh, night operator came out and said, can you come quick, can you come quick, there's an emergency. So I grabbed my headset and, well, I've never seen anything like it. The switchboard was just in a blaze of lights. I should think every subscriber that there was had picked their telephone up at that time. And, of course, a lot of them didn't know what had happened. A lot of them weren't aware of the emergency. And uh, if they wanted uh, an attention quickly... Uh, if they dialed 999, obviously they go through to the emergency board and they would be answered. But that was full up, so there was no chance of getting through on that. So they'd be there dabbing their receiver up and down like this, and all the lights were flashing. Everybody was doing the same thing, trying to find out what was going on. You know, no gas and no, no loudspeakers. And so everything. you had this van saying there was not to put your gas on. That's right, yeah. yes. And then you would go into work, and, well, given people were... Tapping their receivers uh, yes, to get attention. Yes. How did you decide what was the most important? This, well, you couldn't. You couldn't. Yeah. It was just potluck, you yeah. know. 
and um, by this time the other eight o'clock girl had come on so and the poor chap that had been there all night on his own well he must have been just absolutely run ragged do you, you remember know. who that was yes i remember very well gilbert fletcher his name was sadly he's not with us any longer but uh, he had a, a horrendous night and of course in the middle of the night couldn't get any backup you know to come and come and help him so from that minute on it was all hands to the plow and as people were coming in you know dr- dragged them to the switchboard as quickly as you could and let's get on with it Voices from the Forest podcast was a Voices from the Forest production for Foresters Forest. The presenter was Roger Deeks. You also heard from, in order, Emily Wood, Ivy Gunter, Joe Lewer, Amy Wynne Williams, Ruth Dainty, Jill Phelps, Rosa Taylor, George Hogg, Pam Stratford, Glenda Griffiths, Meryl Teague, Roy Close, and Pam Box. Thanks also to Caroline Prosser-Lodge, Cheryl Mayo and Emily Hughes. This podcast was made possible through the support of the National Lottery Heritage Fund and the University of Gloucestershire.